coming up on Better Place Project. When you look at this particular part of the story that I've been telling, it tells the story of a species that that made the decision, for better or for worse, to have a very sort of special and reciprocal relationship with the earth. That species is our species. And I think, you know, we've forgotten that. And I think we're beginning to suffer the consequences of forgetting that. I think this is the thing that's out, that's become unright in our relationship. And I think, so, so, part, of, so part of the response to the crisis that we're in is to, to, recover, to recover that reality. To, if, if we all knew this, in some small way, it would help us, you know, it would help us make better decisions about the way that we treat the world and each other and even ourselves. So that's, I just wanted to make sure I covered Earthling Theory a little bit because um, I think it's an important part of the story. Make the world a better place. Make the world a better Hey, hey, I'm Steve Norris. Welcome to Better Place Project, where each week we shine a light on amazing humans from every corner of the planet who are doing extraordinary things to help make the world a better place, including sharing their knowledge with us on how we can be living healthier, happier, more purposeful lives. How did we get here? And where do we go from here? In this five-part series, ecologist and founder of OICA, Dr. Rich Blundell, takes us on a journey of the cosmos. But this is way more than a history lesson about the universe. This is about you and me and everyone and everything around us, how it all came to be and how we are all connected. You see, nature has intelligence. A magnificent, sublime, complex intelligence that science is just now beginning to understand. What would it be like if we felt that intelligence inside of us? In this series, you will discover how to tap into and feel that innate intelligence that is already inside of you right now. Once humankind begins to understand this, to know this, to feel this, we will be living in a very different, much more beautiful world. So join us on this journey. It just might change your life. Welcome to the final chapter in this series, Part 5, Culturia, which brings us right up to the arrival of humanity on planet Earth. Dr. Blundell walks us through how creatures began to move and how simply moving from one spot to another offered a whole new way of seeing the world. We chat about what happened upon the arrival of Neanderthals and Homo sapiens and how the earth has endowed us with our capacity to do art precisely so that we may feel our intrinsic belonging and connection to the planet, ourselves, and each other. Religions emerge, new ideas form, science and technology were born along with commerce creating the industrial revolution. But what lessons have we lost along the way? And what ideas will we bring with us into the future? And more importantly, can we save our future? Can we save ourselves from ourselves? 
To get the most out of this episode, we recommend you pause this podcast now and scroll down to the episode notes and watch the two short videos, Culturia and Earthling Theory, which we'll be discussing today, and then meet us right back here. And now, part five with Dr. Rich Blundell. Rich, we made it to part five. How's it going, buddy? We made it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a fun journey it has been. This is bittersweet for me because I don't want it to end. I've had so much fun knocking these bad boys out. and It's not ending. It's This is just the beginning, too. Yes, it is. All right. Well, let's get rolling. Where do we, where did we leave it off and where are we going with this today? Well, uh, well, there's, there's, there's a little confusion in the films because I, uh, I went a little too far in the last episode. Uh, and so what I want to do with this one is to take a couple of steps back uh, into some of the content of, the, uh, of where we left off last time, just to sort of get the ball rolling and um, Sounds good. Um, um, pick, it up, pick it up from there. Um, but before we do that, just real quickly, I want to just um, take one moment to, to remind us of why we're doing this. And the reason is because this work, this work of understanding the past um, is going to be essential for the kind of future that we're going to be able to, to create and to live. Uh, and so there are the, the, the proposal of Oika is that there are deep wisdoms to be had in what the science has been revealing about how nature works. And that part of the crisis that we're in today in fact, a, a fundamental part of the crisis is that we have become misaligned from those deep intelligences of nature. And that by telling the story of nature, as we are part of it, as we're integral to it, will bring those wisdoms back into play for us. And I think, so So that's why we're doing this, that this story that we've been telling provides a kind of coherency, a coherency that's new. So, you know, we didn't know this. And this is all new science, or at least, you know, orthodox and well-established science. And a lot of it is new. But the fact is just that all of this science establishes a deep con- continuity uh, to, to, to who we are. And also, it's relevant. It's incredibly relevant to how we're going to be able to heal the injuries of the past and, you know, map out a sustainable, livable prosperous future for all that's not to be a utopianist of course but it's just to say there are deep wisdoms available to us that heretofore we have not really had access to and so that's what this is about so getting back into the story um i think where we need to pick it up again is um in the the famous cambrian explosion and this is a scene around 500 million years ago in some of the warm, shallow oceans that were all around the world on the margins of the continents, down in those muddy bottoms, clear, you know, oceans. And there was this explosion of new forms of life. And one of the primary and fundamental innovations that life was doing at that time was very simple. And it was this, the ability to move. The ability to go in a controlled way from one position on earth to another. So to move. And the reason this is important is because when you move, 
from one spot to another, what you're doing is you're creating a whole new perspective on the world. When you move from one spot to another spot, you're giving yourself a whole new way to see the world. I want to stop there. I want to really <laughs> think about <laughs> why that's important. Because think about today. I was what just we... going to say that as you're talking. Don't want to interrupt you here. But first thing I think about is when we humans move, when we travel, when we get up and we go to another yes. part of the world and we interact with another culture, you use the P word. And that's so vital. Our perspective shifts. We exactly. grow. We evolve. So sorry. Didn't want to steal yes. your thunder. No. But yes, I did want to pause here as well. So thank that you. That is basically it. And And now think about this. In the crisis that we're in. The proposal here is that what we need in order to address it in an adequate way is to come up with a whole new way of seeing the world. See, life figured this out a long time ago. In order to deal with a changing world, you've got to change your view of that world. You've got to change the way you see the world. That's what this story is attempting to do. It's attempting to give us a way to change the way that we see the world. Does that make sense? It's like when we- Makes when we, total yeah, sense. Yeah, so when we can place ourselves into this grand arc of nature, we, we are changing the way we see the world. This is, this is what life does. This is how life innovates. What's the scene from Jurassic Park? The complexity guy says, life finds a way. This is that. This is, this is us today telling this story is a way that life finds a way to adapt. So there's, there's a fractal it, there, an inherent fractal. Ties in, Rich, so beautifully with so many of the other things you've taught throughout this series. Things like it being in our best interest to cooperate. And the more we understand, you know, how many wars have we had in the history of mankind where we were afraid of, of someone who speaks a different language or has a different skin color. But, but then when we start merging and, and living together and, and learning about each other. And like I said, traveling to other parts of the world and realizing they're human to human too. And that opens things up to, you know, compassion and to symbiotic relationships right. that we're talking about throughout nature. So exactly. It's about, it's about narrative disruption. <laughs> That's yeah. narrative awareness and disruption, which we talked about in earlier episodes. So um, that's what life is doing. And, what comes prepackaged with that simple idea of moving from one place to another so that you can get a different view of the world is the impulse to also develop new sensory organs, new sensory apparatus for sensing that new world. Okay, so, so deep, not deep, but down at the bottom of the Cambrian Sea, we've got things like eyes emerging and the sense of smell and the sense of taste and the sense of touch and feel. These are all things that life does in order to get a better understanding, a better grip, a better sense of relationship to the world. This is an ecological perspective on this process. So, so and this works. And so what we see is this incredibly flourishing ecosystem. And as we're going to see again and again, flourishing, when you see an ecosystem flourishing, that is a marker that there is some kind of right relationship happening deep in that matrix of relationships. There is an overall sense of rightness. There's a right relationship. There are right relationships at work to create that flourishing. So when you look at the world today and you ask, well, are we flourishing? 
you know, maybe maybe the point one or the one percent of people are flourishing at the moment. That's not going to last, okay? Because far too many of us are not flourishing. The bottom line is that if you take a snapshot of the world today, human beings and the planet itself are not flourishing. Something is out of right relationship. I'm not here to say what that is. All I'm here to say is, hey, look, something's out of right relationship. Again, Oika, is this is this is this project is this effort to try and bring right to, to try and cultivate more right relationship. So we've got Cambrian seas, we've got a flourishing ecosystem. Uh, and this goes on, turns along uh, for for millions of years with all new ways of sensing and gathering food and reproducing. Um, and all of this is afforded by changing our perspectives. Now, um, seems to me plants and even trees are now arriving yeah, correct exactly, as well. Exactly. That's, that's where I was going to go with this. So all this stuff that we've been talking about is going on under the sea. And we talked about why that is, because in order to coordinate all this activity, all these new senses and organs and the muscles and things like that requires coordination. And that requires communication between cells. And as we've already showed that when you grow up in an electrolyte called seawater, where you can carry electrical signals, that's why these organisms have adopted the electrolyte method for controlling musculature. Now, up on the land, there's new kinds, there's other kinds of evolution happening. And in this case, it's um, er the early plants, these photosynthesizing um, algae and bryophytes, early sort of plants that are so sort of um, encroaching out of the water up onto the land, they're still dependent on water. And so they have to develop ways of not drying out. So this is how the cell wall evolves. And you have these plants that spend their lives up on the edges of the continents now. Now, part of life is death. And when these things die, their their bodies and the nutrients and the, you know, the, the organic matter that they're made of starts to accumulate as this new innovation called dirt. Now, before this time, you have to remember that all over the continents of the planets, there was, there was no soil. It was all just sand. So it was just, you know, little bits of minerals and grains of sand, but there was no organic matrix that, was, that would bind it all together. And so the sand couldn't really hold life. It couldn't really hold things together. But now that you've got real soil, you've got this new matrix from which new things can emerge. So this is about 400 million years ago. And what happens is in this new biogenic layer of soil, new, more robust and complex plants can begin to emerge. Eventually, you end up at a, at, at a thing called tree. So I want just to think about a tree for a moment. So close your eyes and think about a tree. Chances are you are imagining this timeless form that ecologists called arborescence. Arborescence is the imprint of treeness in our minds. So when we think of a tree, it's this very sort of elegant form. Up at the top, you've got leaves, in the, you know, and then you've got branches below that. Then you've got this trunk that reaches down to the ground. And then in the ground, in that new soil, you've got roots. Now, 
this is a really elegant form that's doing something really profound. Think about what the leaves are doing. They're photosynthesizing. They're capturing the photons that are, that are being emitted from that star. Remember that star, our sun, which was at the center of that accretionary disk of the solar system. Well, this life form now has figured out a way to, to, to efficiently capture those photons, use it to excite electrons in its cells to create more energetic molecules that it stores as carbohydrates. And then it can transport those carbohydrates using a fluid, water. But where does it get that water? Well, it needs to draw that water up from the soil that's now down below. See, this is like this elegant solution, right? A tree is this elegant solution. It's got these leaves that capture starlight at the top. It's got these roots that collect water at the bottom. And then it's got this trunk in the middle that is a conduit to mix all this stuff. I mean, this is just, when, when you start to think about what a tree is in the context of the evolution of the earth in a solar system around a star, it becomes a, a wholly different organism. It becomes an elegant solution to continuing the creative life force. <laughs> so that's really what a tree is. And ecologists call this niche construction when when a habitat, the one that I've just described, soils and light in the air and water, when a habitat creates a form, that's called niche construction. It's a habitat creating an, the shape of an organism. But you have to remember, too, that the organism is now shaping the habitat. So we have continents now that are covered with forests. In fact, when you think about you know, land, you see this vista of a tree-covered landscape. So what we have here is an, a habitat shaping an organism and an organism shaping a habitat. That's niche construction. But I want to say one more thing about that. When I asked you to imagine the tree, the tree pops into our minds so easily, right? This is also niche construction. Not only does the habitat create the tree, but now the tree has helped shape our minds. You see how... Niche construction isn't just something that happens between, you know, trees and soil. It's something that happens between trees and mines. There is a there is a reciprocity, a deep reciprocity of all these things that tie us intimately to the world. I know this sounds like it's completely outside of the realm of what an ecologist should be talking about, but this is also an ecological dynamic. The fact that trees have shaped our minds okay is a lost it's a lost kind of love affair like that we still feel it but we don't take it seriously and we should be anyway i want to get back to, to the story yeah. here um which is that uh we have continents now that are um covered with plant life plant life is is diversifying it's creating all kinds of new niches that are inviting creatures to inhabit them. So typically we think of it that, that it was the winged insects that evolved to first sort of come in and take advantage of these niches, new niches, but also back down in the ocean, life has now evolved into these things that are like the early fishes. The Devonian is called the age of the fishes. And some of these fish are developing these, these kind of bony appendages from their lungs from the gill are, are, are the structures of their their i'm sorry their gills and they can use them to support their body the other thing that they're doing is 
they're figuring out a way to now participate in all that stuff that's going on up in the land, all that oxygen that's being created by the photosynthesis. They want to they want to get a piece of that. And so what they're doing is evolving ways of gulping the air to not just use their gills, but to now use lungs to hold to hold air. And so what we see is this migration out of the sea onto the land. And so the first creatures that come up, these kind of legged fish, those evolve into amphibians. Um, and then amphibians continue to evolve into a form that can be uh, less dependent on water. And then the amniote egg evolves. And these are eggs that have a hard shell that can resist drying out. And, um, you know, the story goes on. And um, so what we have next are a whole new class of cold-blooded, well, let's just call them their, their, um, their exothermic um, reptile-like creatures, usually on four legs. And they're continuing to diversify, just like in the Precambrian Sea, life diversified. Now it's diversifying on land. And we have this whole um, suite of new dinosaurs that emerge. And they are experimenting with much more complex nervous systems in order to control their muscles. And along with that experimentation comes new pri um, uh, reptilian social dynamics. So uh, we don't, we can't really say much about this from the fossil record, but we can um, infer that there's pre new predator prey relationships um, and, and just all kinds of new complexity happening at the level of neurological activity. Um, and so this is a, um, this is a long uh, 160 million year reign that dinosaurs have. Um, if you were to have dropped yourself down on this planet during that time and looked around, you would have thought, man, this is a, this is a planet of large dinosaurs, reptiles. Uh, however, there was one warm Cretaceous afternoon all these dinosaurs are just kind of doing their thing. And you remember back when we were talking about the early earth, there was this period called the late heavy bombardment when it was like just the residual asteroids left over from oh, yeah. the formation of the solar system. This is what yeah. created our earth and the moon. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, at least one of those chunks of asteroid must have gone on a long orbit somewhere, but it ends up arcing back around and returns to its origin place and you know rips through the Cretaceous atmosphere and impacts the earth that disruption um, ends up wiping out the dinosaurs not only from just the impact but from the the um, climactic uh, the climatic disruption that would have followed it would have created like centuries of almost darkness correct dark for, cold yeah. winter now, these are cold-blooded animals, and so they they would have they would have needed the warmth of the sun in order to kind of in, in order to, to to trigger their their metabolism to keep their metabolism going. But what we kind of overlooked was that in the shadow of those dinosaurs, sort of living down in the crevices, were these other creatures, these other little four-legged creatures that had evolved to kind of avoid dinosaurs, and in order to avoid them, they would come out at night. And because they came out at night, they had to evolve ways of generating their own internal heat to keep their metabolisms going. And they also ever evolved fur. And so I'm talking about, you know, the 
the the the the primordial mammals. So once the dinosaurs had been sort of wet, prim, pr predominantly wiped out, this gave these little mammal creatures a chance to get a foothold. And so then they they took advantage of this opportunity and they started to um, um, adapt um, and radiate into all kinds of different habitats. And one of these species um, would become a primate, a precursor to a primate. And they evolved all over the world. And one of these, um, one of these early primate species ended up migrating from North America and Eurasia back down into Africa and continued to evolve down there. And then that, uh, that species would evolve into a species known as Sahelanthropus uh, chidensis. And then another species that came from there was Australopithecus, Australopithecus afarensis, which is, you know, Lucy, a famous species. This is the lineage of um, what would later become us. Australopithecines evolved into the genus Homo, and then Homo would evolve into, you know, Homo habilis, Homo erectus, and then Homo sapiens. And so this is, this is our line. Um, and eventually there were these migrations out of Africa of Homo sapiens. There was actually several waves of different hominid species that we think left. We, we certainly know that Homo erectus left. Um, and anyway, during all this time, there was a lot of mixing that went on. So there were migrations out of Africa and then partial migrations back. There were migrations to, to, the, to the east into the Eurasian landmass, then also to the west into Europe. Um, and then there, were, there would have also been interactions between different species. We know, for example, that the genus Homo sapiens and Neanderthals interacted. They may have, you know, they may have been in conflict. They may have been in competition. But there's also evidence in our genomes that they that they interbred, that they were, you know, they there had were some love affairs, affairs some, some yeah, candlelight uh, or fireside uh, romances uh, all, going back yeah. thousands. So all of kinds years. of new relationships evolved from there too. So <clears throat> I know that's a lot, and that's brought us up to, um, you know, uh, uh, three hundred, say three hundred thousand years ago or one hundred fifty thousand years ago, um, but. Are there any questions? Do you have any questions that you want to? Because before we go on, I want to, I want to take a moment to just sort of to reinterpret that story I just told you. But I just want to check in with you first. Yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm enjoying the ride. I'm just okay. uh, I'm enjoying the ride. I know we're getting to an exciting part, but I don't want to steal your thunder. So no, go ahead and give okay. us uh, your 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 summary. So at around this time, okay, let's just pick a date. Let's say forty thousand years ago. There were um, Homo sapiens species living in different parts of Europe, uh, what is now France, Spain, Italy. And we find that they were going into these caves and they were using different sorts of pigment and different art methods. And they were creating art on cave walls, you know, deep underground. They were going to great length to go down and paint just these incredible works of art. And I wanted to just stop for a moment and think about why and how that happened and why it matters. And, and to do that, I want to go back a little bit. I want to go back to an earlier species um, about 7 million years ago. It was a species called Sahelanthropus chadensis. 
and it was primarily a tree dwelling primate. Um, and it would have been, you know, bipedal part of the time would have walked upright part of the time, but, and this Sahelanthropus is the, is a common ancestor between us and chimpanzees. And, um, now, we don't know exactly how this happened, but we know it must have happened. So what I like to imagine is that there's a, a female Sahelanthropus, and she's sitting up in the tree, and perhaps she's like the matriarch of a small group. And she looks down and she sees something on the landscape, something that catches her eye. Perhaps it's like berries, red berries. And she wants to taste them. She wants to use this sense of taste okay that evolved in the precambrian sea and she wants to taste those berries and so she goes down from the tree and as she goes down because she's part of this social group there are there are other sahelanthropus individuals that that respect her that they they follow her so that would have been like her 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 cousins her sisters and they would have brought their their offspring with them and then there would have been like a small group of males that's usually sort of in the periphery and then then this small group would have gone down to get these berries out of the tree and as they're eating these berries you know they're getting the nutrition they're getting the sweetness now of course the, the berries might have been poisonous okay so it may have killed them all so this may have happened a thousand times but on the thousand and first time you know it happened to be just these delicious nutritious berries so on this thousand and first time they, they eat the berries and not only are they eating the berries, but they're learning something. The berries are teaching them that if they take certain risks, if they, if they, if they act on certain relationships that they're in, then they'll be rewarded. They'll be rewarded with the flourishing. Anyway, let's imagine that this small group of, of Sahelanthropus leave the tree and they leave behind the whole other group that they were with. They get, and they keep doing this. They keep following the berries further and further from the group. So they end up spending the night far away from the other group. The next day, they come back down from the tree. And now having learned from the berries that, that, that they can take these chances, that, they can, that they, can, they can try things, that they can be curious about things, they're curious about the river. And so now they follow the river. And as they're following the river, they're drinking from it. So they're getting rewarded. The next day, that same idea, that same thing that, hey, you know, we were curious all last week about things and it paid off. What about that? What's that on the horizon? It's a mountain. What is that? Let's go. You know, and so this group, of course, I'm imagining this. This is kind of like a this is kind of like a children's bedtime story. <laughs> but the point is that the habitat that these primates are going through are teaching them how to be in the habitat, right? And it's rewarding them for making the right decisions. Now, if you take that process and you and you multiply it over eons and eons and eons of generations, okay? So let's say that that, that original family group, you know, they create new, new offspring and then more and more generations are doing this process and they're following the cues of the world. In each case, they're learning and they're evolving so that, the habitat is changing them. It's changing their bodies. Now they've evolved into a new species. Now they're, they're, they're Australopithecines. And the point is that this process happens over millions and millions of years. We've got six million years to work with. And the world is changing this species and it's teaching this species. And every habitat that they go into teaches them new things that, they, that the next generation inherits. 
eventually they evolve into the species Homo. Now, as they're doing this, they may have encountered these like stones, these volcanic rocks. And one day, one of these, one of these individuals picks up a rock and has the cognitive capacity to say, I'm going to use this rock and I'm going to hit this other rock with it to create a sharp edge. And then this sharp edge I'm going to use to, 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 to rip the husk off of these seeds. And then we're going to be able to eat them. So the process continues. But what's happened here, which you may not have noticed, is that the rocks and the world have now taught this species how to tell stories. This is where narrative, remember this thing we've been talking about, narrative? Well, this is where it comes from. The, the Only those species that take these chances and live in communion with every one of these habitats is going to be taught how to tell stories because that's what it takes. It takes takes the cognitive capacity of storytelling to say, I'm going to do this, and then that's going to happen, and then this, and then that. This is a plot. It's like, this is a complex cognitive capacity that that dogs don't do. You know, humans do this because we were taught how to do this in the Paleolithic by stones that we encountered in our daily lives. Now, this is just a long way of saying that the world is teaching us, and every habitat that we encounter teaches us something new. So what we see is through time and through new re reciprocal relationships with habitats, those stone tools now have, they evolved into more elegant features to the point where if you look at an Acheulean hand tool, it's this incredibly elegant shape. It's symmetrical. It has sharp edges. It's just finely crafted. So whoever made this, which is probably Homo habilis or let's say, well, let's say it was, um, yeah, Homo habilis, um, they had to sacrifice the utility of the thing for the aesthetic qualities of the thing. So my point is that at, by this time, the world has actually started to teach human beings how to appreciate symmetry and, and aesthetic beauty. Like this is where we get this quality. We, it was taught to us by different habitats in Africa. Eventually, these same stone tools evolve in like to make, to make a Mousterian hand tool through this technique called Lavawa requires that you be able to see one thing in terms of another to make this complex stone tool, which is really the precursor to the capacity for metaphor. Well, so stone tools are teaching us these things. The world is teaching us all these things. Now, as this happens now, we've evolved into Homo sapiens. We, we, we take all of these skills, the storytelling, the, the aesthetic appreciation, the capacity for metaphorical thinking, and we, we, we take those cognitive skills with us, we leave Africa, and by the time we get to these caves in Europe, we're doing cave art. My point is that I'm, I'm trying to draw the continuity of how cave art can suddenly appear. You see, like, like it's actually, if you think about it in this ecological and, and ontologically continuous way, then you realize that art, the capacity to do art, is really a gift, the endowment of the right relationship of our species with the habitats of this world. Okay, and if you need evidence for this, okay, all you need to do is to look at the chimpanzees today. So six or seven million years ago, our species diverged from the species that would later go on to become chimps. That was the moment back in the tree when they saw the red berries, okay? The species the group that stayed in the trees and didn't leave 
went on to become chimps and they're still living that way. They haven't really changed. They haven't changed the way they they live or think. But look at, look at us, look at what we've done. And the reason that we've done all of this is because we've had these long, sustained, sequential, intimate relationships with every habitat on this planet. That's why I call this earthling theory. It's because what it's saying is that all of these qualities that we think of as uniquely human, you know, these things that we pride ourselves on being so, so unique and so gifted, these are the gifts of the earth. And I think that it's important to remember that because, you know, it's, it's provided everything that we are and look at how, you know, we're kind of treating it. We're treating it in a way that, that wouldn't, that doesn't add up, you know? And so the point is this, that just that, when you look at this particular part of the story that I've been telling, it tells the story of a species that that made the decision, for better or for worse, to have a, a very sort of special and reciprocal relationship with the Earth. That species is our species. And I think, you know, we've forgotten that. And I think we're beginning to suffer the consequences of forgetting that. I think this is the thing that's out, that's become unright in our relationship and i think so so part of so part of the response to the crisis that we're in is to to recover to recover that reality to if, if we all knew this in some small way it would help us you know it would help us make better decisions about the way that we treat the world and each other and even ourselves so that's i just wanted to make sure i covered earthling theory a little bit because um I think it's an important part of the story. Sorry, I know I just went long. No, that was great. I I love a quote from the film that you that you tie all this in where you say the earth has endowed us with our capacity to do art precisely so that we may feel our intrinsic belonging and connection to the planet, ourselves, and each other. There it is. Well said, Steve. Sums it up beautifully. <laughs> hey, I did. I did uh, give appropriate credit to the uh, to the master behind that quote. <laughs> so anyway, so we need to kind of wrap this up. But uh, so the story goes on from there. Um, you know, the the planet at one point um, goes into another glacial period. What's called the glacial maximum, uh, and then and as that begins to warm up again, and the glaciers begin to melt about twelve thousand years ago. Uh, it creates this opportunity for humans to begin to really disperse around the entire planet. Uh, and part of that, uh, now, what are we going to do with all of these endowments of the earth? Well, some of the things that emerge are um, pretty powerful things like agriculture. I think agriculture represents uh, a, a time when you know, it, it was a, it's a pretty profound moment when humanity made the shift from you know, living in direct contact with the ebbs and flows of nature to a time when we began to depend on and work toward, you know, agricultural surpluses. I'm not, I'm not making a judgment about this. It's just something that happened. And with that, you know, came a lot of other peripheral um, consequences, um, things like writing and the rise of city-states and new power dynamics uh, and new ways of new experiments in how to govern um, populations of people. Um, these are all 
natural um, ways in which life tries to find a way to 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 coordinate and manage. But then sometime probably around 1200 BC, due to a confluence of factors that have to do with uh, trade and environmental change and probably diseases, um, that the systems of governments that we had developed began to deteriorate. And then there was this uh, thing called the Bronze Age Collapse, which is where a lot of these things um, just started to, to fall apart. Um, and so this wouldn't be the first time this has happened. It's happened many, many times in the history of the earth that uh, life has setbacks uh, and it has to regather. And just like it did in all of those previous cases, it comes back with a vengeance. So as the pendulum swings back, we get this period known as the axial age, um, which is a period of a flourishing of new thought. And it's thought that this is when most of the world's major religions came into being. It's a time that ideas about transcendence and sort of other worlds started to enter into the way we thought. Of course, they were, they were around for a long time, but this was a period when those ideas started to get formalized. Um, and these are, you know, these are things that, that are still with us today. We've inherited a lot of these narratives about things um, um, right up to today. So, um, oh, okay. So then we've got, we've got the axial age. And then again, different civilizations around the world are trying different ways of combining you know, um, complex cognitive capacities and storytelling capacities and ways of creating equity and, and disequity. And this stuff goes on for a long time and there's all kinds of wars and conflicts and alliances and new trade. Yep. And, uh, eventually, um, we start to, you know, we continue to explore the new world is the new world is uh, quote unquote discovered. Um, and there's a period of conquest and colonization and new, new trade, new trades are established. Um, now we're now still living in the consequences of a lot of those, those ideas, you know, for better and for worse. Um, and the other, another big, moment you know and, and the reason i don't really focus too much on this part is because we know a lot of this history um already and so but one of the big things that happened was the emergence of science um especially thinking in terms of the enlightenment science the way that you know the way that kind of modern science is is done um and also the industrial revolution which was kind of parlayed into our search for new forms of energy and the discovery of fossil fuels. And, you know, this is starting to get now into the realm of, you know, living memory. Our, our grandparents can, might start to remember some of this stuff. And we're certainly still living in the ideas and the habits of this period. And then along with that whole scientific and, and industrial revolution, you know, it goes hand in hand with technological revolutions. And one of the biggest ones of those that we've all lived through are these revolutions in new communication technologies, which by the way, when I think about the revolutions in communication, I think about the revolutions in the way that trilobites sequestered 
electromagnetism to control muscles. This is this, they were doing cybernetics, you know, 500 million years ago. That is a cybernetic process. It, it, and it's using information to control systems. Well, that's what that's what the cybernetic revolution is today. And so here we are, you know, with the emergence of 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 artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence and um this brings us up to uh to today how far we've come <laughs> yeah and, and and what's so interesting rich is that that a few years back i i i saw the neil degrasse tyson uh history of the cosmos you know series and he did this fairly very fascinating kind of timetable of the history of the universe if it took place in one year's time you know the 13.8 billion in one year's time and and uh and you know almost everything you talked about today would have been on the last day or two of the entire year and when you start getting humans in you're getting into the last like 60 seconds of the the last 13.8 billion years if you were to just lay it out on a grid across one year's time it's just a sliver of time the last you know 50,000 years it's it's so hard to wrap your your brain so around what are that. we going to do with that though steve that is a big idea that is a hard thing to hold you know like when sure is like i i look at i think about this story all the time in fact i walk i walk around with an abiding sense of this whole story in in me and then i i have to confront what you just said which is the the impact of humanity in just this infinitesimally small moment how are we going what how are we going to adapt you know how, how what are we going to do in this moment because the story that i've been telling puts what you just said into a whole new context. It's like, wake up people. Like yeah. we need all hands on deck in this moment to figure out how is, how are we going to participate in the creative life force of the universe in this moment? Yeah. I mean, when you look at the history of the cosmos in the last four and a half billion years, the history of, of the earth, it's almost been like this, you know, glorious emerging party that's been going on for 4.6 billion years. And we are the drunk dude that shows up to the party and starts smashing, you know, the windows and breaking shit. Um, and, and, and it's interesting as you were talking, Rich, it towards the beginning of this conversation and you brought up, you know, soil and the importance of soil and basically our existence today and what, how that brought on, you know, the trees and and what what needed to happen for soil to even exist with the with the death of, <laughs> you know, and, and whatnot, and and it's, you know, uh, my listeners know I'm a documentary junkie, and there is a documentary out there on Netflix, or at least it was a couple of years ago when I saw it, called Kiss the Ground, with. Um, Woody Harrelson narrates it of all people. And, and that whole documentary is fascinating because it talks about, you know, the climate, the, you know, the climate crisis, but the possible solution to saving mankind could be soil. And it gets into all the things that we have done with agriculture, for example, with, with tilling, that we do with farming that that 
you know, at the end of a harvest, you know, tilling these fields and sending, you know, this, these, you know, pollutants and pesticides and all this up into our environment that's all you know falling back down it it uh, but it but it, it basically tells the story of how and brings up bring they bring in scientists to talk about how soil can be a huge part of the solution to climate change and actually saving humanity well that is one of the themes that pops out again and again and again is that what's next you know we we rarely if never see it coming you know the trilobites did not see it coming uh-huh. and you know they're gone <laughs> the dinosaurs did not see it coming and they're gone is that is that our story too or 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 are we going to make good on this relationship that we have um embarked upon with this planet you know we're the ones that left the trees we're the ones that followed the cues you know again and again every one of our ancestors made the right decision or else we wouldn't be here my point is that endowment that the earth has 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 provided us i think it's in there what's next is in there all we need to do it's not hard and it doesn't take a big sacrifice i think this is one of the first things you and i talked about when you said what are we to do and i said not much it's it's that kind of a thing the the solution to these big problems is not going to take a grand engineering effort i think engineering and and design and hard technical quantitative thinking is a part of that solution but it's more but of a perspective shift isn't it it's a perspective shift and i think it's also to draw upon those capacities that the earth has actually endowed us with that's why i think art is really important because what is that what is that that we bury the dead you know the fact that we that we we cherish the unseen we imagine the bigger intelligence those aren't accidents those are lessons that have been taught to us by this earth and i think i think the thing we need to do is to start listening to those intelligences that's how we get out of this mess you know not by taking the 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 hubristic approach of saying we know the answers and we can calculate it and here's the data to prove it no it's about feeling again what the earth taught us eons ago and ever since you know it's it's about remembering those relationships and all that it has imparted into us everything that the world has imprinted onto us we need to start to remember we need to feel that again and then we'll start living differently like there's an there's a latent way of being in the world that we just need to remember that's not to say we need to go back do you see that this isn't to say that we need to go back to living like paleolithic or neolithic people it means we need to remember the intelligence that the earth has taught us because it taught us it taught us for a reason so that we would thrive that was the whole point that was the whole that was the that was the deal that was that was the the arrangement was that if we listened and followed the cues nature would 
provide prosperity. The, the problems you know? will take care of themselves, won't they? Yeah, as long as we participate. But we've stopped participating. Sure. And we've stopped. To your point, if we're if we're right in nature and we are listening to what nature is teaching us, that is not compatible with pouring pollutants into a river, for example, or you know, using fossil fuels uh, for the next uh, you know one hundred years. They're they're not compatible. And I guess what what concerns me in, in 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 all of this, and I'll 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 throw my gloom and doom out first, and then my you know my positive uh, bright side of of this whole thing. What concerns me is is you talked, for example, at one point the species of of primates living in the trees, and some of them had some curiosity and went out and uh, and said, uh, uh, hey. You know, let's look at those, look at those berries down there. Let's go check those out. And then it went from there to following the rivers and, and, you know, and all of that. Some remained in the trees and, but both those species survived. Those chimpanzees are still here. They maybe didn't develop like you talked about, but they, they survived and they were okay. My concern is that if only an X amount of humanity has the curiosity or the desire or the open heart to embrace everything that you're teaching if the other half doesn't and 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 we can't as humanity get right with nature the repercussions of that kill all of humanity not just not just those that you know not just 50 percent of them you know what i mean 50 percent you know a million years ago or a few hundred thousand years ago were able to go down two different paths and be okay so, so that's, that's my, the first thing that comes to mind that I would be concerned about is, is it's going to take, I think, more of a small or even 50% of humanity to, to subscribe to this and to force all to get right with what the cosmos and nature is trying to teach us. Um, your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, no one said it was going to be easy and no one said it was going to be guaranteed. You know, that's, these are all, these are other insights sure. that come from this story. Um, however, you know, given what you just said, what are, what are we to do? You know, uh, um, and by the way, I think the work you do is what we are to do, which is to try and highlight you know, those instances of right relationship that you see in the world and do the niche construction. You see, that's where niche construction comes into play. When you do that, you are creating organisms. You are an organism that's creating a habitat. And then that habitat creates organisms. Like that's niche construction happening in the technological age. So, uh, look, I, 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 I'm not a utopianist, and um, but what are we to do with a life, you know, to just participate in <laughs> the destruction of it or the creation of it? I, I know the difference. I know, I know how those two things feel, and uh, I know how it feels to participate with the creative life force, and so I prefer that and um 
as I was saying, I think this isn't all hands on deck proposition that we need to redesign our political systems. We need to redesign our educational systems. We need to redesign our economic and, and, you know, material supply chain systems. These are all things that we need to be putting our best intelligences toward. However, we also need hope. You know, we need to feel inspired. We need to feel, we need to believe that it's possible. And so this is another important part of this, this project. And so I think that's the realm in which we work. We work in the realm of trying to communicate that it is possible. The beauty of it is, is that, like you said in the very first episode, and you you mentioned it in, to, in today's episode, when I asked you the question, this is going back, gosh, two and a half years ago when you were first on the show, and I asked our signature question, what advice do you have for us on how we can make the world a better place? And, and, and your answer is one of my favorite of all time. And it floored me that you said, not much. We have to enjoy and you broke down that word and means to create to 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 engage to enhance something is to bring you know engagement or to bring enhancement and um and and as opposed to enjoy being like i remember you use the the analogy of the you know you know coca-cola enjoy your 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 coca-cola and it was kind of more of a a passive thing in the english language that enjoy is you know sit back and enjoy as opposed to when we're out in the world to create our own joy when we're out there. And so much of that is just noticing the beauty around us, just noticing, you know, I know I'll never, you know, and I'm a tree guy. I've always, I've always loved trees, but I'll never look at a, a tree the same way without considering the top of the tree and the, and the bottom of the tree, you know, with, with the water coming up and the sunshine and the photosynthesis and the trunk and, and, and just an awareness of like you said where we come from and seeing the beauty in all of that at what it took to bring us here today it's uh it makes it almost you know hard to not take a walk outside and notice the hummingbird and notice the flower and notice the patterns in the sky and 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 all of that and and after having done that i don't know about you but my interactions an hour later with my fellow human beings are way, way better. Yeah, that's it. You, I think you just nailed it. And I thank you for that, for, for bringing it back down to that simple thing, which is just, you know, you have to live in the world and you live in the world that you see. And when you see the intricacies and the relationships and the beauty and the complexity, and you let yourself feel that joy that's inherent in all of that. Like that's a, that's a, that's a birthright for us to feel that this is the inheritance really of this lineage of, of these primates is to be able to know and to feel and to choose to participate in that. That is a deep sense of joy. And, uh, and I think you're absolutely right. That, alone might make the difference. Amen.
Well, I can't think of a better better place to uh I think you just put a beautiful bow on this. Uh any any closing thoughts to make sure we're not leaving anything out? No. <laughs> beautiful, Rich. This has been just an honor and a privilege to to come on this journey with you. It it really has been a blast. I can't tell you how much I have valued this time with you and I value your friendship and um, just just thank you for for the bottom of my heart for showing up here and and sharing these you know these last five episodes it's been a uh, something I'll I'll truly never forget so thank you my friend thank you Steve so much thank you man Peace appreciate out. it and for our listeners to learn more you can go to oika.com o-i-k-a and uh, learn more about Rich and his courses that he teaches, his courses on Earthling Theory. Um, any Anything coming up, any retreats or anything coming up in the future you want to throw out there? Well, they'll be, they'll be listed on the website, so oika.com. Perfect. Rich, thanks again. Thank you. Special thanks to our producer, Noah Existe, and editor, Joe Tempoco. Our music was written and performed by Algian Importante. Thank you so much for listening. If this podcast brightened your day in any way, please share it with a friend who you think it might resonate with. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review as that is the single best way to help the show and get the word out to more good humans. For behind-the-scenes info, please visit our website at betterplaceproject.org where you can even click on the microphone in the lower right-hand corner and leave us a message or just stop by to say hi. And you can follow us on Instagram at betterplaceproject.org and you'll find me at Instagram at Steve Norris Official. Look for small ways to be kind this week, and that will help make the world a better place. Make the world.